the other side of this tension is how do we also take workload off frontline GPs and nurses so they can focus on the people that are in front of them, not having to deal with this backlog of administrative work that they all have to deal with every day, and by moving that into a team that can kind of process that more efficiently. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Guerrilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Hey folks, greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain. Uh, today, real privilege to be sitting down having a chat uh, with Josh Robb. Welcome along, Josh. How are you? Hey, Paul. Great to meet you and be here. Yeah, likewise. Um, maybe you can fill folks in where you fit into this big, wide world <laughs> of, of tech and startups here in New Zealand. Yeah, so I'm one of the co-founders and the chief product and technology officer for Tend um, Health. And so we are a um, healthcare service provider. So we're a technology business and a healthcare service business in one, um, which is a really exciting and interesting thing to try and do. It's kind of like trying to mix oil and water some days. But, um, but we're trying to uh, imagine a whole new way of delivering healthcare services, both for consumers, but also for, for the primary care workforce. So for, for GPs and nurses and the other people that work in, in primary care, um, you will have seen lots of media over the last you know 12 months about problems in healthcare, and particularly in primary care, and how unsustainable it is, burnout, workload. There's all sorts of challenges on the workforce side. I mean, at the same time... Um, you know, there's real issues with equity in New Zealand in terms of the kind of access to services in different parts of the country, what kind of experience people have and whatever else. So we're trying to kind of come up with a new model for how we deliver that, that that really provides an improvement from a consumer perspective, but also really provides a much better and more sustainable um, uh, job for the people that are actually working in those services and, and delivering those services on a daily basis, because I think there's been a real lack of meaningful change in that space in a long time. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It seems like a uh, a really good opportunity. So it's exciting to to see uh, to see you and the ten team uh, take, taking it on. Yeah. Uh, so definitely looking forward to delving into that. Um, but I thought maybe um, to start with, we can hear a little bit about sort of your journey in the sort of software development and and uh, mm-hmm. and startup world. Uh, you came from PushPay, sort of you know prior to uh, to tend, um, but there's a bit more sort of a bit more yeah. <laughs> uh, back from there. So, you know, what was it that sort of initially drew you into the into the world of uh, tech? Well, I think at the start of my career, I worked um, for Fujitsu um, doing kind of, you know, consulting and services stuff and really like had a great team, really enjoyed what I was doing, t- technically really interesting. But what I realised quite quickly is that um, if I was doing that kind of work, I was always going to be in the cost centre side of a business. And I quickly understood that I wanted to not be on the cost center side of things. I wanted to actually be on the value creation side of things. Um, and so I kind of made a switch. I'd been programming since I was like young, 12, yeah, 13 or yeah, something. But yeah. I kind of was like, oh, I should move into software engineering because if you build products that help run businesses, then that's more value than just making networks and systems work well for a business. Um, and so I went and worked for Glazier Systems, which quickly became Advantage Group and then became eventually Intergen. Um, worked with a bunch of really smart people there like Tony Stewart and Rod Drury and you know, a whole, whole bunch of really smart people. Um, and a, a few people at that point in time had, were really evangelising the idea of software as a service. Um, Salesforce had been out for a few years at that point in time and, and the idea that you could deploy something with a web browser as opposed to having to run around with a, you know, binaries installing them on individual computers was kind of transformational. And I was like, oh, this is, this is much more interesting. And so I kind of got excited about software product development um, from that experience, and, and that's kind of what I've done. And I think only recently have I kind of looked back on my career and realised that pretty much since that point, which is around 2000, 2001, I've consistently chosen to go and work for crazy entrepreneurs 
over and over again. And even though some days I'm like, why do I do this to myself? I've kept on making that choice. So it must be, I must enjoy it. Otherwise I wouldn't yeah. keep on choosing it. And I do, I really, really do. So yeah. I love, yeah. I love the, my friend JD Trask, who's the CEO of Raygun, um, made this comment. He, he's a bit like me. He grew up quite nerdy and, you know, into computers at a time when that was definitely not trendy. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and he said, you know, I was never into sports at high school, um, but when I realized that business was like the best team sport ever, then I suddenly clicked for me. And I, I think that's a really nice way of thinking about it. It's like, I really, really enjoy the camaraderie of doing something with a group of people, building something together, yeah. trying to grow, dealing with the kind of highs and lows of that on a daily basis is really good fun. And I've worked pretty much consistently for startups since that point in time in different kind of shapes and stages, but always yeah. kind of choosing to kind of be in a, in a business that's building something new as opposed to businesses that are kind of kind of running something that already exists. And, you know, there's no disrespect to people that do that. You know, it's, it's a hard job. But um, I really enjoy the, the the growth in the building. So that's kind yeah, of that's been yeah. the choice. I've I've kind of done a whole bunch of stuff over the twenty years intervening, but that's that's been my kind of consistent pattern of of decision making. Yeah, maybe not fully conscious, but yeah. <laughs> so uh, in those early days, sort of moving into the into the software world, yeah. Uh, what did you do? What <laughs> I, I worked for lots of failed startups. <laughs> <laughs> my wife and I moved to Italy. Um, and we lived there for a, a year and a half or so, which was a great experience. Um, not, not much of a startups in Italy at that point in time. It's changed a bit since. Um, and then moved to London and, and worked for a couple of startups there. Some really interesting kind of ideas, really interesting ideas. None of them made very much money. Um, in most cases, I ended up having to get new jobs because they didn't make money, which was disappointing because you can, can you spend a lot of time building software and really yeah. sweating the details and thinking about how to make things work well and how to make things work great for users and to look beautiful and, and to be architecturally elegant and to be safe and secure. And there's, there's lots of things to do building software. Um, and then to kind of get to go home and just throw that away and start again is kind of, you know, disheartening for the team and disheartening yeah. for the individual. I mean, apart from the business failure side of it, which is obviously got its own kind of dynamics, but to have kind of spent this time crafting something and then for it to come to nothing, mm. you know, a, a few different times was kind of very um, – not painful, but just it kind of really forced me to start thinking about, okay, if, you know, I've only got so many rolls of the dice in my career, how do I make sure that the things that I'm working on, I think, are sustainable ideas that can actually turn into something that, that is meaningful and valuable over time? Mm. Um, it was a kind of a real interesting learning experience for me. I'd say that was kind of the, the noughties for me was kind of going, okay, how do we make sure we build software that's good? And so by the end of the noughties, I ended up working for this um, Interesting organization. Uh, they've actually rebranded again. I actually can't remember the current name, but they were TMP Worldwide, and they do um, recruitment advertising. Yeah. Um, so they're a, yeah. they're an agency that their whole business is helping employers recruit people, and they have some very big clients like you know BP and you know Tesco in the UK, and you know mm. all, all sorts of stuff internationally. Um, <clears throat> but we ended up doing a startup within that business, which was really interesting. So we built um, an applicant tracking system, which is you know a job application system that you use for managing. We ended up selling it to sort of 15 or 20 of the FTSE 50, um, you know, it was a great little business. Mm. Um, the company that I was actually working for was acquired by TMP and TMP acquired it because of the relationships they had with those customers. Mm. And we'd built a, a really nice little recurring revenue software as a service business inside this agency. Um, it was doing, you know, seven figures in pounds, which was great. Um, and a small team working on it, um, really proud of what we built. Um, and the acquirer came in and were like, yep, we love your relationships with these businesses. We have a competing product that's a little bit different, but sells for probably 10x what that one does. Wow. We want to sunset your product and sell them this one instead. Um, and I was like, like, you cannot fault the strategy there. It was a great, great <laughs> business decision. It really, it was painful to have to sunset a product wow. and to kind of work with these customers we've been working with for kind of five or six years to kind of be, hey, look, we're 
we're turning this off. How, how can we support you migrating to something else? By the way, we've got something else. Um, really tough on the team. Uh, you know, people invest in, in the things they build. Um, yeah, but a really yeah. great experience and really interesting experience to go through. I learned lots about how not to write SaaS contracts out of that, actually, um, and the importance of having good termination provisions because it turned out we actually didn't have uh, a legal right to terminate some of our customers, which, wow. was, <laughs> which wow. was interesting. Um, so, yeah, but really interesting experience and, and you know, really, really fun, uh, really great team. And then coming out of that, I was kind of, I'd actually been, so I'd worked in the UK and then my wife and I had lived in Melbourne for a couple of years and then had a kid and moved back to Auckland um, to be close to family. And I kind of kept working with them and running the team kind of through that whole experience. But I kind of found myself in 2013 contracting in Auckland for a little bit, which was great. But it was the first time I'd worked in New Zealand in about 13 or 14 years. Mm, mm. And um, looking for what to do next. And I'd been um, carpooling with this guy, Phil Howie, who was the founding engineer at Pushbay um, since... 2011 or something, I'd known him. He'd come to me and said, oh, this, I've got these friends and they want to build this app you can use to pay for things. Um, what do you think? And I was like, well, um, this seems like a bad idea. You know, whatever you do, don't take it. It's probably the worst business advice I've ever given anyone <laughs> in my life. Um, but I was like, make sure you get paid for that because it <laughs> seems unlikely it's going to turn into anything. I guess you'd, you'd been part of things. Well, that I've, I've been in a lot of failed out, startups right? and so. I know a lot of people that have worked in failed startups. So, you know. Yeah. And to be fair, like the initial idea for Push Bay was very, very broad. You know, Chris had this really, really wide ambition to be like a horizontal payment brand like Visa, Visa or MasterCard, you know, um, and they experimented with all sorts of things. I mean, full credit um, to the team at that point in time. They tried, you know, paying for coffees and paying for builders and plumbers and paying for um, electricity. Yeah, electricity. Oh. I mean, yeah, I worked on that. But um, they were like talking about doing a deal to pay for toll roads. I mean, you know, I mean, there was clearly at that point in time a real payments problem. Mm. Um, it was mm. inconvenient to pay for a lot of things and mobile payments at that point in time were not very prevalent. I mean, it was obvious that Apple and, and Google were going to come for that market. Mm. Mm. Um, and I, I think that's one of the things I actually learned that's really interesting is it's very, very hard to know from the outside whether or not a business is going to be successful because everything is so... Um, uh, dependent on the actual strategy of the business and the need that they're filling within a segment. And so it's easy to look at the outside, like at Pushpaid, people used to say to me, well, A, how do you have so many developers? At the time, the team was like 100 people. And it's like, it seems like a lot of people for what looks from a consumer experience perspective, like a couple of web pages that let you pay for things. Yeah. yeah. Um, and maybe an app. Uh, but it, unless you understand the value that the business is providing to the people that actually pay it, you know, it's very hard to assess whether or not it's going to be successful. And I think that's kind of part of my journey has been kind of getting my head into what's the actual underlying business model? Like where are the actual gaps in the market? What are the customer needs and where is the value and what are people willing to pay for? Mm, um, mm. And I think if you can find a problem that's big enough that people are willing to pay for, then you can have a great business no matter how much it looks like something else if you're solving real people's problem and they're giving you mm. real money for it. Mm, so, mm. yeah. And so what was it that sort of, you know, pulled you in to actually join Pushpay? Well, I was, I'd worked for another startup that had run out of money. Um, and so at the end of 2013, they'd run out of money. And um, so I kind of found myself unexpectedly on the job market um, just before Christmas. And Pushpay had actually run out of money as well. And because I knew Phil quite well, I knew some other people in there too. Um, they'd had this big staff meeting and full credit to Chris and Elliot, they had had the staff meeting and they'd said, look, everyone's just been paid. We need you to know that's it. There's no more money in the bank for next month's payroll. So we would like you to make sure that you act in your own interest and look after yourselves and your families. Um, and we want to be fully honest with you about this, um, which I really respect. Like, that's a hard meeting to have with the team. Yeah, um, yeah. I remember we discussed that when I chatted with with Chris Heslip yep. on NZ Business Podcast yep. and we sort of talked through yep. that journey. And, yeah, really interesting just, just to hear that story from yep. – 
his perspective because they, they did have a couple of options, you know. Sure, um, they did. But, but the, at the but, point in time, yeah. they also had no money in the bank. Yeah. And, and so yeah. I actually, like Chris knew that I was on the market, he found out. And so he'd contacted me um, through the CTO at Pushback at the time. And I came in and had a meeting with him and Paul Shingles, who was the COO there. And they were like, we'd love you to come and work with us. The team was like two or three people. And I was like, well, haven't you just run out of money? And they're like, yeah, but we think, we think we're going to get some more. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so it was like early December and I was like, well, I'll just have summer off. I'll, ha- I'll do Christmas with the family. And in January, um, if you've got money, I'll come and work for you. And if you don't, I had a, an, a job offer from um, Spark and I could go do some software development there. And I was like, well, yeah. okay, I've, I've got something. So they managed to raise some more money. Peter Hewlich came and invested at that point in time and yes. um, they really took off. And one of the things I, I'd been talking with Phil earlier about in the Push Bay journey was – that they were kind of randomly trying all these different kind of options to try and find product market fit, which is a great way to do it. But I was like, you know, Phil, what Pushpay really needs is someone who's going to be in the room and ask the question, how is this going to make us money? Because there's lots of payment problems, but there are not lots of payment problems that will generate sustainable revenue. Yeah. And yeah. solving payment problems, if you're not clear on how that's actually going to turn into a revenue stream for you, seems like a, a bad business strategy. And they'd hired this guy, Paul Shingles. It's an in- interesting story, actually. But Paul was the guy in the room saying, how is this going to make us money? And they'd hired him about six months earlier. And between him and the Hewlett family, they'd kind of suddenly focused on, oh, this church market really have a payment problem. And they're willing to pay for a solution to it. Um, and which is an important, you know, having a good problem is really important. But having mm-hmm. customers that are willing to pay for a solution to that problem is as important as having a good problem. So Paul had kind of, um, and the rest of the leadership team and the Hewlett's had kind of helped focus the business on, okay, let's really go hard after this church market in the States. Yep, yep. Um, <clears throat> and they'd raised this money to scale into the US. Um, so pretty much at the time that I was joining, Chris and Elliot were moving to the US. They'd already been there for a bit kind of temporarily, but they were fully committed, you know, what's the saying, you know, committed like a pig, not committed like a chicken. So they relocated their families. So I came in um, and quite quickly ended up running the engineering team there um, right about the middle of 2014 and growing that team from four to, I don't know, it was very rapid growth. I think we added 25 people in the first year mm, and mm. then kind of tripled and then doubled and doubled. So it was 100 people within kind of two years. Um, so that's a very hard thing to do, both just recruiting that many people is, is complex um, from a kind of cultural and, and, you know, workforce availability perspective, but also kind of maintaining forward momentum on key initiatives and projects. The business was growing very, very, very quickly. Um, so I think when I started, we probably had less, maybe like $50,000 of recurring revenue per annum. Um, at the end of the first year, actually must have been less than that. Um, at the end of 2014, we probably had $100,000, $200,000 of recurring revenue. And, and the year after that, we had millions. You know, it was, it was mm, ridiculous. Yeah, we were yeah. adding hundreds and hundreds of customers a month um, by kind of early 2015. And so there were all sorts of interesting problems to kind of solve and scaling challenges and quality challenges and, and whatever else. But it was a great experience and, you know, had a really good time. Yeah. So tell tell me about that um, that scaling that growth. Like, yeah. had you needed to hire at that sort of pace <clears throat> no. before? Like, <laughs> what what did you put into play to to make that work? Was it sort of extra roles that were able to able to carry that a lot? What were the kind of the the challenges and the solutions to uh, you that's know a, to make that that's work? A great out question. Well? I mean, I think there's kind of quite a few different layers to it but that one of the things that was really nice is that kind of by Chris and Elliot had a really clear kind of vision of, of what they wanted to make from a product mm. perspective they weren't mm. always fully aligned but they had quite a clear idea of the kind of general category yeah. of problems they wanted to mm. solve mm. and they 
managed to build, and I think full credit to them, they really understood that the most important thing is not actually the technology or the product, it's having customers that are willing to pay you for a problem. I, I've already said mm. this, but you know, mm. that, that's mm. the real key test. Yeah. And so they sold quite a long way ahead of where the product was. They kind of sold the vision mm. as opposed mm. to what they had. And there were early adopters that were willing to say, yep, look, we can see that this is very thin at the moment, mm. but we also love what you're saying and where you're going. And their vision was absolutely spot on. You know, if you look at what happened in that, that charitable giving space in the US, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, before Pushpay, you know, that was mostly checks and people putting cash in buckets. And that clearly <laughs> was not going to be sustainable at that point in time. Yeah, Someone yeah. needed to bring a solution to that problem because people are carrying less and less cash. I don't have any cash on me today. I don't know if you do, but, you know, I had to go to something yesterday. My wife was like, have you got any money? I was like, no, I don't have any money. Like, yeah. So, so they sold the vision, and then as soon as you have customers, then you start getting feedback, right? Yeah, so there are yeah. all these people saying, well, where's this thing that I need to be able to do my job? Or I, need, yeah. I have this problem, and I'm using your product, and I can't solve this problem myself. Like, how is this problem going to get solved? So we had, like, very clear feedback from the early customers yeah, and from the sales yeah. team about what we needed to build to win more business yeah. and to keep the business that we had. Yeah. Like, not, it was not ambiguous. Like, they were all aligned on, like, three or four really key things. Right. Yeah. And so, and it was those things were not trivial. They were quite significant initiatives, but it was really obvious what needed to be built. Um, and so, the whole team, it was really easy to align the team because it was like everyone's telling us we need these three things. Yeah. So we need yeah. to go really hard after these three things. Yeah. And yep. at the same time, we need to hire a team of people that can let us do these things faster and with higher quality and you know whatever else. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was really a, a matter of kind of going, okay, we've, we know how the work we've got to do, like at least at a high level. We've kind of we know what customers are demanding, mm. and that's a great mm. place to be. Like, if you've got yep. a product and your customers aren't telling you they want more stuff, then, yep. you know, that's in itself a feedback, right? Mm. Um, so we had this really clear kind of backlog of work or roadmap of things we needed to achieve, and it was like, well, how are we going to get all this done? And it's like, with the team at the time, it was maybe half a dozen people. It was like, okay, this is going to take six years. And so the pressure from the executive team and from the board was like, okay, how can we do it in 12 months or 18 months or two years? And I think one thing about Pushpay that, you know, was really kind of, early in the DNA there was setting really ambitious goals mm. um, so being ambitious in terms of you know how many new sales we wanted to get being ambitious in terms of how long we wanted to take before we were willing to release something the thing with Pushpay is it's, it's payments and so it's both regulated quite highly regulated in terms of the credit card side of things um, and the Pushpay also does a lot of transactions in the US banking system um, in terms of the equivalent of bank payments um, it's worked quite differently over there but um, that's also regulated in its own way. Um, so there's all sorts of hoops and hurdles to jump through there. So going fast is hard. Um, the standard that we set for the kind of customer experience and the quality of that experience is really high. And also because you're handling money on behalf of some other organisation, and especially because it's charitable, like that trust relationship is a really big deal. Like, yeah, like yeah. A, a charity or a church saying, hey, we trust you to receive donations on our behalf for our people that are donating to us. It's kind of a really... It's a significant choice for them. You can't stuff. And you, you can't you stuff, cannot that up, stuff it up. And, and, and they're, then it, they're, like, they're stuck. And this right? exactly. And and they yeah. lose the trust. Like they lose the trust of their givers. And then you know they don't have the money yeah. to fund you their services. Accidentally or their, their double charge exactly. someone or yep. any of those exactly sort of right. yeah. scenarios that 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 you know that, we've, happen. that yep. we've all seen. Yep. And yeah, uh, yeah everything yep. goes. And we had some horrific experiences. You know, some of them. Um, our fault in terms of, you know, we made mistakes in terms of the quality of what we built or operational processes or whatever else. But also, like, the banking system's actually kind of constantly broken to some extent. Especially um, in the US. Well, I mean, thinking, everywhere, you know, yeah. like, the fact that credit card payments work at all is actually kind of a, a miracle, really. <laughs> um, it's incredible what actually has to happen to make that all work. And so, I mean, we had situations where um, 
two or three occasions where processes in the states or banks or bank networks in the states would load yesterday's tape again by accident and replay transactions really? on our behalf. Yeah. <laughs> that would affect hundreds oh, of thousands of people. They would, t- wow. they would put less but holds on the money again. Wow. Um, and then all of a sudden you've got someone who gave $200 yesterday <clears throat> having another $200 come out of their account today. They might not have room to they, they buy don't, or they, can't, else. or they can't yeah. buy food or they can't pay their rent oh, or – and there's no mechanism in the payment system to reverse that. You've just got to wait for that hold to expire. So how do you manage the response management around that, the incident response management, customer communications, managing stakeholders in terms of you know boards and, and everything else? It was a very exciting and difficult exciting. and painful, <laughs> painful experience. That's, yeah. yeah, it does sound, yeah. does sound pretty painful and, and stressful having to deal with those those sorts of things. So how did you you know how do you get through those sort of challenges and and end up on the better side? So I think I stole liberally from lots of other people. And so I think in particular, um, at in 2014, 2015, Etsy, the sort of online craft marketplace, you know, uh, had been through a really difficult scaling period of their own from sort of 2010 that had all sorts of interesting things. And they talked quite publicly about some of the issues that had and some of the practices and cultures and things they'd focused on. And one thing that I'd kind of um, been interested in for quite a while I'd worked with a startup in the 2000s who um, had not been successful, but the guy that ran it was a really, really interesting guy. He was into all sorts of alternative religions and all sorts of things. And he'd introduced me to um, Nonviolent Communication, uh, which is a book by um, this guy whose name just is temporarily escaping me, who had spent his whole life trying to facilitate dialogue between Israelis and Palestinians. Wow, wow. Um, and so he has a framework for how to um, express you know, feelings, strong feelings and needs and whatever else in a way that is kind of clear and unambiguous but also um, non-violent. Um, that was my first introduction to the kind of overall notion of just culture and the idea that there was kind of um, two ways to kind of deal with conflict in life. Um, so on the one hand you have uh, sort of a, a punitive culture where, you know, mistakes get punished. Um, if, if you say something bad or do something bad, you know, the wrath comes down and it's how yeah. most companies tend to organise themselves. Mm. Um, you know, you have a target or a deliverable and if you don't meet it, then you get beaten by whoever the person is responsible until you do the thing. Yep. Or you can have a, a culture where it's restorative where you say, hey, look, how do we learn from this experience? How do we hold people accountable but also work to improve the systems and processes? And what Etsy had discovered, um, their CTO at the time, John Allspore, VP of Engineering, had encountered um, what's called human factors research which is study into incidents or error, human errors. Um, and so kind of things they typically research are things like air traffic control, plane or vehicle accidents or ship accidents, but also medical misadventure um, and surgery. There's a whole bunch of research in there. And in that world, there's been a lot of work done looking at the kind of root causes of system errors. And if you see like a plane crash, you know, quite often it's like pilot error is the sort of prescribed reason. But in fact... Pilots are operating within a system. It's yeah. a very complex system. I don't just mean the system of plane controls. There's air traffic controls and all the feedback they're getting from different things. Same with surgeons and hospitals or other kind of hospital monitoring systems where it's not just an individual's error of judgment in the moment that causes this. There's a mm. whole sequence of events that gets there. Mm. And so um, some software engineers have kind of taken some of these concepts and turned them into this idea of kind of just culture or sometimes it's called blameless culture, mm. which is the idea that running internet services is not dissimilar to flying an airplane or to maybe doing surgery. I mean, maybe that's a little bit grandiose, but but certainly it's very similar in that they're complex systems. There's many different people involved. There's different factors. There's different agents and actors. And if you punish people for mistakes, you end up not being able to learn from things when they go wrong and figure out how to improve the system to make it safer in the future. Yeah. And I'd kind of been exposed to this kind of over intervening 
10 years or so. And so by the time I got to Push Bay, one of the first things that happened really early on is that we did a release like in the first month or so of me being there and it went really badly wrong. Um, and, uh, and so I was like, okay, well, we're going to stop and we're going to reflect as a group on this experience. I'm going to write down some notes about what happened and why and things, actions that we think we can take that could improve this outcome next time. Um, and so we started establishing that kind of learning culture and that sort of blameless culture really, really early at PushPay. And it made it really easy because one of the things that I started saying to people was, I was like, look, it's not fair to recruit people to come and work on a payment system. It's, a, it's notoriously scary to work on payments. People don't like it normally. It's, it's high consequence for getting things wrong. And, and so we can't ask people to come in and work on things and then beat them when things go wrong. We have to have a process where we say, okay, how do we make this better and safer next time? How, do we, how are we able to go fast, but also able to go fast in a way that the individual is not going to end up being hung out to dry yeah. when something goes wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we, we established that really early, and I think that was probably one of the, the key sort of factors, and there's a whole bunch of path dependence that's very hard to kind of necessarily know exactly. But, it, but certainly that's an ethos or a co-papa that's still really alive today at Pushpay, mm. and it's really cool to see it. Yeah, um, yeah. And they talk about it across the whole business, not just the engineering part yeah. of it, but like the yeah. HR team talk about it. Mm. You know, and it d- does not mean there's not accountability. It just means that when something goes wrong, we don't start with, Paul, you made a mistake. We're going to take you out the back and you know give you a beating until you don't make any more mistakes because that's just not an effective <laughs> thing. But it's like, no, hey, Paul, you no. said you're going to do X and you didn't mm. do X. Mm. That's that is not like we can still have an accountability conversation with yeah. you about yeah. whether or not you've delivered on what you said you were going to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's when things go wrong, how do we as an organisation learn from those mistakes and improve on our organisational systems and processes to do mm. that? And I think really creating a learning culture was really really important really early. It's really important to create that psychological safety. It's become very popular since. It wasn't a phrase that we used at the time, but it was absolutely yeah. trying to create psychological safety yeah. Yeah. in the face of a really scary environment where we had a really, really rudimentary system that was almost a prototype, to be honest, that was being sold very rapidly to a lot of organisations. And so we had to have a way to kind of go, how are we going to evolve this really quickly, improve its safety, improve its reliability, improve its performance, but not have individuals feeling like they're going to get you know, castigated for things going wrong. Yeah, you only have you've only had so much time to develop what's there. Yep. There's all sorts of limitations, pressures, yep. etc. And you've got to create that right sort of yep. culture. And I guess, you know, in the startup world, which is is starting to, you know, aspects of startup life as just the norm, I guess, within more and more businesses, right? That that need to be able to um, move at pace and iterate and, and come out with new things and so on, right? It's um uh, you know, I think it's essential for the survival of of a lot of organisations yep. that they that they actually take on these sort of startup type sort of tenants, right? Yeah. Yep. And so that sounds like, um, yeah, you you got that really really right really early on, which is is great. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and honestly, like, I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm a genius about this. I think it was just the right obvious thing to do, and, and a bit of luck in terms of what. I'd been exposed to, and I wasn't the only person in the organisation that was aware of this. It was a, mm. a movement that was building within the tech sector, and it's much more widely kind of appreciated and known now than it, than it was then, but but yeah. it was one of those really critical enablers for us culturally that allowed us to kind of safely hire people and onboard them and ramp them up. Yeah. The, other, the other thing that happened just really quickly is that um, we had a, a production issue. I was still quite hands-on at this point in time at Push Bay. We had a production issue kind of late 2014, and I ended up having to um, do some database work one night quite late for an operational need. And again, like it's a classic scenario, a whole system of fail-safes and whatever failed. And I ended up accidentally um, 
sanitizing, removing a whole bunch of data out of the production database at about 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> um, how, did, how did that make you feel? Oh, it was not a good night. I mean, that was, I mean, it was a dark, dark place. Oh. Yeah, it was really not good. Even yeah. worse, one of our key investors was in the middle of demoing um, to Amex in Australia when this happened. So they were the one that found the problem. It wasn't obvious in the moment that yeah. what had gone wrong. Yeah. So I got a call yeah. like 30 minutes later um, saying, hey, is there something wrong? And I was like, oh. And sure enough, there was. So, you know, um, spent a lot of time recovering data and, and the team had to do a whole bunch of work over the next few weeks to kind of fix things up. So we got things sorted out relatively quickly. Mm. Um, but it was a really liminal moment for the organisation because I came in the next morning, everyone knew what had happened. And it was a really important test culturally for the business of is this blameless culture, does it, does, is it truly blameless or is Josh getting fired? And to be honest, I didn't know what was going to happen. Mm, but mm. full credit to Chris and Elliot and, and Paul Shingles at the time, the COO. I mean, obviously it was not a good incident and we were able to talk about the fact, the consequences of this and the impact to this investor and, and our brand and, you know, whatever else. Um, so I have to say we did not raise money from Amex at that point in time. Not that I actually know that was what was going to happen. But, but it was also really important to go, okay, yes, this went badly wrong. How, and we just did the same process. It was like, okay, what are we going to learn from this? How are we mm -hmm. going to change things? What are we mm -hmm. going to do differently next time? And we established a whole bunch of different ways of working at that point in time. And you know, one of the big ones was actually we're at a size and a scale now where it's not suitable for one person to be working in production at 11 o'clock at night yeah. um, because they're on a deadline. Like that's yeah. actually not a safe practice. Yeah. And so we're like, actually, we need like the, the kind of – the startup hero, you know, just, you know, do an all-nighter to kind of get something done. It's like actually this acting against ourselves in this moment, we need to be more intentional about making sure we're putting people in a safe situation where they're well-rested and when they're doing highly risky things, they've got the appropriate support around them so they're not just off-soloing it by themselves. So we kind of made quite a few changes around that and some of those things I still carry with me now in terms of how we get people to work on production systems when we're doing high-risk stuff because, it, you know, you can, you can put it the wrong command in the wrong window and have very serious consequences not just for you know, yourself, but for many, many thousands of millions of other people. Yeah, and I think that there's a really good lesson, some learning in there, and I, you know, hope for uh, listeners that they're, they're catch, catching this because, yeah, there there is this sort of, you know, pace that comes and, and yeah, you can end up with the sort of heroes that end up working long hours and, and so on, but, you know, we've got to recognise that, Actually, that stuff's not sustainable, and you know, you might, yeah, we might sometimes think that oh, this is the way it has to be. This is startup life, and so on. And uh, yeah, actually, there can be flow-ons in terms of you know an impact into the business. There can be flow-ons in terms of the impact on families and, yep. and so on. Whether it's yeah, with the long hours, you know, the travelling and 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 so on. And uh, yeah, it's actually really important to. To figure those things out and to recognise, you know, how you're going to navigate through, you know, what sometimes are some pretty intense pressures, right? Absolutely. Like I can imagine you've got Amex opportunity, and I'm not saying this was the case here, but where it was like, oh, we need to deliver this by this time because you've got this, this is the deadline. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was have, unrelated. We but have yeah, to do but, it, but, yeah, right? There you was know, a different the, deadline. The, the, these <laughs> things can happen, Absolutely. right? And, uh, yeah, you've, you've got to work out – when, when you say yes and when you say no to well, And I just think, uh, like, those, also, those just, like, I've, I've learned a lot. My brother was kind of early, very into kind of um, outdoor extreme kind of adventure stuff. He did a whole bunch of different things, ice climbing and mountaineering and whitewater kayaking and stuff. And he's yeah. an incredibly good risk manager. Mm. Um, and one of the things that you kind of learn if you study kind of the history of misadventure and kind of outdoor stuff, if you look at 
incidents where people have been harmed or, or been in unsafe situations, often it's because people are fatigued, they're tired, and the decision-making kind of gets progressively worse. And so you end up with a series of decisions that have been made yep. from people that are under stress yep. and they're fatigued. Yep. And then the next thing you know, you know, you've got a boat that's you know in an unsafe situation or you've got someone stuck up a mountain without the right equipment or without the right supporting team around them or whatever else. Mm. And I think, you know, for building software products, services that run online, particularly if they're used by a lot of people or they run 24-7 or, you know, that working with those systems is really similar to anything else, you know, there are decisions that you will make that are really high risk decisions and how do you provide a, a culture and a set of um, management mechanisms that mean that people aren't making dangerous decisions by themselves when they're unprepared for them and they have the right support around them and they're not fatigued. Mm. And so kind of learning things like later on at Pushpay we started moving into kind of much more structured incident management where things were going underway. We would rotate people through incident management roles every kind of four to eight hours so that no one was running an incident for too long before the pressure kind of ends up kind of compounding into. And all of the big mistakes that I've seen yep. have ended up happening. They tend to be after hours. They tend to be late in the day, people working to deadlines. And then the remediation and response to that gets very complicated because people aren't available. It's the weekend, you know. Yeah. I've been in so many war rooms <laughs> over the years <laughs> where, where people are dealing with major problems yep. and everyone's tired and stressed and frustrated and, you know, people get elevated and it's difficult to kind of, manage people's emotions through that and also mm. to make sure you're making really high quality decisions. And so yeah. how do you kind of create a culture where you're not running people so hot that you, you don't have the capacity to deal with the unplanned or the unexpected? I think in startups that's kind of a really important question. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, such a challenge. And uh, we talked before the show around what Twitter's going through and they're going through, you know, huge changes. And, yeah, there's an aspect there where they've kind of – They've reset in many ways sort of back to, yeah. you know, they've got an existing product, but they've reset back to, oh, we need to, whatever they've, that uh, Musk has decided and the team have decided that, that they need to do and it seems to be, yeah, big up and sort of pace and intensity and so on. It's going to be quite fascinating to see how that how that plays out really, over, really well. over, over time. Anything else you wanted to sort of share from that time at Pushpay? Because I'm definitely keen to uh, to learn about 10. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a phenomenal business and a phenomenal product, and I'm you know I'm really proud of the work that we did there. There's you know a whole amazing group of um, alumni that have gone on to do other things, and mm. that's one of the greatest things actually. I think like, there's been a whole bunch of exits over the last couple of years in different ways, and it's just really nice to see the ecosystem in New Zealand growing in terms of its capability and experience. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of one of the things that I'm most proud of is you know between Pushpay and Vend and Timely and you know a whole bunch of others. There's all of these kind of people that are now seasoned operators that are kind of coming out and doing their own things or, you know, working in other startups, doing stuff. And it's just nice to see New Zealand's overall capability growing in that space because I think New Zealand's always had quite high-quality software developers in terms of yep. people that can build software. But there's a difference between building software and building a product. And um, especially online products, you know, software as a service or whatever have you want to kind of – what nomenclature you want to choose um, – it's more important to run the service well than it is to build the product in some ways because if the service isn't reliable, Twitter's a good example, you know, the fail whale of 10 or 12 years ago. It went on for years. It went on for it? years, right? Yeah, and and yeah. if products aren't reliable, customers will abandon them. Um, Twitter's a little bit different because it's a consumer product and it was free, so, you know. But, yeah. but, but if you're selling software to people and it's not reliable, like, that's really the end of the game. Like, Yeah, yeah, it's quite funny. I actually met the um, the... I guess graphic designer, illustrator, who designed that uh, that farewell. For, oh right, brilliant! For, yeah. for Twitter yep. one time in the US, and uh, it's quite funny that like something that's such a sign of failure 
um, was so well known. And it was like, and that was <laughs> must her, be one of the most famous illustrations her, in the world, right? Yeah, at that time, anyway. I mean, yeah. you know, a lot of people these days wouldn't wouldn't be yeah, probably not it. even familiar with it. But there was that window of of time where you know the the platform was, um, yeah. Struggling so much that uh, that that illustration would uh, would would come up uh, on a pretty regular um, regular basis. So uh, yeah, kind of funny. Yeah. So tend how yeah. how did how did tend <laughs> you know come come about? What was uh, you know what did the founding of it look like? How did you get you involved? Know, yeah. yeah. So um, I while I was at Pushpay, I was doing quite a lot of travel. Was in the US probably every month or every other month for a couple of weeks. So it was kind of three or four months a year on the road. Um, and I've got two kids and a wife. And so my wife and I have been talking and sort of trying to work out what we needed as a family. And this was not working particularly well for us anymore. And around that time, Cecilia and James Robinson approached me um, and told me they wanted to do something new. Um, they'd been out of my food bag for a couple of years at that point in time. And they'd tried retirement and found it wasn't really for them. Um, they got bored. And they, they were missing some purpose and a, a <laughs> yeah. sense of kind of mission. Um, and so they made me sign an NDA. And I, I wasn't actually, I was not really looking for anything. Um, so I was, I was quite difficult, to be honest. <laughs> but they convinced me, they were very persuasive. And they were like, look, we want to do something new, but we want you to sign an NDA. So I signed this NDA reluctantly. And they were like, we want to do a healthcare startup, a health tech startup. And I was like, okay, I'm quite squeamish. Um, like if there's, you know, medical shows on, I tend to cover my eyes if there's anything <laughs> gory or, you know, I'm yep. just, it's not my thing. Yep. Um, and so I'd never really considered this, um, but I had kind of looked around. And one of the challenges in New Zealand, and we were talking about this before the show, but is that if you build software, it's very difficult to build a software product that's only for the New Zealand market. Um, Trade Me is an outlier example, um, but there's not very many pieces of software you can build where the market in New Zealand is big enough that you could just sell it in New Zealand and have a sustainable business. Um, and so I had kind of assumed that my next thing was going to need to be offshore because I, I was just like, there's just not that many opportunities. And the problem with being in New Zealand is it's great from a lifestyle perspective, but if you have to travel to customers, it's really, really tough. Yeah. And, you know, like Rod Drury had, before Zero, he had a startup called Aftermail. Um, and I remember him talking vividly in like 2006 about the cost of the travel for Aftermail on him and his family at that point in time. Um, and lots of other entrepreneurs that I know have also kind of been through this problem of build a successful business, manage to kind of launch it to the world from New Zealand, which is fantastic. But then you end up on this treadmill of being on planes and, you know, going and doing stuff. And it's been different over the last couple of years with COVID, but I'm already seeing kind of lots of my friends back on planes, back in the US multiple times. Yeah, it's fun the first few it's, times, it, right? Yeah, like travel sounds glamorous until you actually live a travel <laughs> lifestyle. And then, you know, a friend of mine said to me, you know, it's a great lifestyle for people who are single or who want to be single. Um, <laughs> and I'm neither of those things. Um, and I think, you know, that's one of the under-talked about things and mm, with sort of mm. the software world in New Zealand is actually that, you know, COVID's been great because it's cut down some unnecessary travel. And I think people are much more willing to kind of do deals over Zoom or whatever these days. But there is still a need to be in market with your customers, potentially with the rest of your team if you've got a team that's remote. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I know people in the last few weeks that have been in the UK and the US all over the place. So I was trying to work out what I was going to do and I hadn't really considered health at all. And Cecilia and James were like, look, we think there's this huge opportunity. They'd actually been talking about this idea since before they started my food bag. One of the largest healthcare providers in Sweden is a telehealth provider. And so they've been kind of watching that grow since 2011, 2012 and, and kind of going, oh, this, this looks really interesting. But they'd gone with the my food bag idea and it had gone very, very well for them. So they kind of pitched me this idea and I was like, well, that's really left field. I had 
that was not what I expected. And so I went away and started doing some of my own research, not in the QAnon sense, but just trying to understand what was going on both domestically and internationally. And a few things became really, really clear to me. One was, A, this was a, had the potential to be a really significantly sized business in New Zealand without doing any travel, which ticked one of my own personal kind of goal boxes. Mm. Um, as I got to know Cecilia and James, I really, really started to warm to them. Um, and we like we just have a really phenomenal relationship now, and it's great. Um, I like entrepreneurial people. As I said, you know, I've consistently chosen to work for crazy entrepreneurs my whole career, and I think, you know, yeah, they absolutely yeah. fit that box. I love it. Um, there are days where, you know, you're like, man, why do I do this? But but most of the time I love it, um, and they are phenomenal, phenomenal business leaders and, and just great people and really values aligned, which is also really important to me is, you know, it's, it's really important to be working with people that you actually respect and, and respect their kind of way of thinking about making trade-offs in business because you have to do that. So I started looking at this and I was like, man, there's so many challenges. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, the, the workforce is really burnt out. Um, you know, customers aren't necessarily, or, or patients aren't necessarily getting um, consistent levels of service across the country. Um, I started to understand a little bit about how some of the funding models worked in New Zealand, which is obviously really important. You've got to understand where the money's going to come from to make a business sustainable. Um, and then one of the, the biggest things was just the kind of lack of um, of digitization of healthcare in this country. Mm, mm. Um, when you look internationally, you know, pre-pandemic, this is my numbers from 2019 when I was doing the research, I think two out of five Americans had had a telehealth um, episode of care in the previous 12 months in 2019. So wow. that's pre-COVID. 40%. Yeah. Um, now that's a survey, so, you know, I, I don't know what the sample, like, accuracy of that was, but, you know, it was a... It's still, it's still significant. Streets yeah. ahead of, and of certainly where New Zealand would have been. And in at Northern the time. Europe, it's yeah. entirely different again. You know, by that point in time, you had Babylon Health operating in the UK, you had Cree in Sweden, um, Teladoc. You know, there's a whole bunch of doctor to go. There was a whole bunch of providers offering kind of different kinds of services and different sort of segments and niches. And when I looked around New Zealand, there was, there was nothing at that point in time that I was aware of. Um, and so I got a real sense of mission, actually, because I was like, man, if New Zealand doesn't effectively produce an indigenous sort of uh, platform for doing this or a, a company that does this, mm. then it's going to end up becoming offshore. Like yep. at some point in time, it's kind of like Trade Me and eBay, right? You know, because mm. Trade Me was early in New Zealand, they ended up owning the classified space. And mm. eBay, by mm. the time they got around to looking to, at New Zealand, it was so well owned, there was no point in them doing a market entry yeah. as yeah. opposed to Australia. Um, and I think that's been really, really good for New Zealand. It's been great for New Zealand tech in terms mm. of talent and, you know, mm. working at scale and whatever else. It's been great, you know, in terms of money that's being re reinvested into zeros. And, you know, there's that wonderful flywheel effect that you get. Um, but it's like, it's obvious that Apple have been working on a healthcare service for ages. It hasn't launched. There's no time frame. So they're working on it. Amazon yeah. have been working on one for ages. Yeah. Google have been working on one since 2002 or 2003. Um, Microsoft have been playing in this space. You've got Babylon. You know, there's a whole bunch. So I was like, sooner or later, some international player is going to go, actually, New Zealand's a nice bite-sized little thing. We'll just come in. We'll launch our solution here. You know, there's heaps of complexity around this. but yeah. And we'll, and it, what that will mean is that if they win the consumer momentum, all of our health data <laughs> is going to go offshore and we're going to become a product of some mega corporate. And I was yeah, like, actually, the, that, that... the control, the profits, I, I think that would, that would be a really, really bad outcome world, for New Zealand. Yeah. So I got real... I got really religious about this, to be honest. I was like, actually, New Zealand needs some domestically originated alternatives. Otherwise, we're going to end up in a really difficult situation in five or ten years' time. Yeah, and look, I think that's actually a key kind of across the board, right? Yeah. We, you know, we've discussed this on on the New Zealand Tech podcast before, like whether it's you know the Amazons or whoever sort of coming into New Zealand. I mean, as much as possible, you know, we want we want to uh, you know control our own destiny. Yeah. 
locally, right? Yep. And look, we we're not going to be able to do everything no. from from New Zealand. Uh, look, it's great to have you know zero, for instance. It's you know the other way. It's coming from New Zealand to the to the rest of the world and so on. But um, yeah, I'm 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 yep. definitely on board with what you're saying, and and probably you know would like to see that in as many areas as possible. So you know, I hope that. Um, you know, others that see similar opportunities are, uh, uh, you know, taking that th- that mindset yeah. on board as well. I mean, there's it's obviously great. been a whole discussion around banking over the last couple of weeks, right? Which is yeah. another good example of kind of offshoring, you know, the profits and onshoring mm. the sort of downside. So anyway, so that was kind of the, the genesis. So we started working on this in 2019. I quit my job at Pushpay and kind of gave lots of notice and started working full-time for TEND um, uh, in November 2019. Um, and it's been, it's been a really interesting experience since then trying to work things out. But I, I think Teresa Gadding, who's our chair and one of our investors, um, has this great line. She says that in the early 2000s, Spark did this kind of big strategic retreat for the sort of senior team, looking at the impact of the internet on their business and what they thought the opportunities might be and some of the risks. And one of the big opportunities they identified at that point in time was healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and what she likes to say is that, you know, since then, uh, the internet has transformed, you know, dating and banking and all sorts of things, and it really hasn't transformed healthcare, mm. not in a way that is meaningful from a customer perspective. I think if you compare the experience of getting a GP appointment today for most of New Zealand to what it looked like 50 years ago, it would look very, very similar. Yeah. You make a phone call, you're given a time, you get in your car, you drive to some place, you know, you wait in a waiting room and you go in. There's some computers, there's electronic medical records, you know, there, there, there's not no change. But actually, in terms of the overall experience, it looks very, very similar um, and certainly my conviction is that in 10 years' time, you know, I think most episodes of care for healthcare are going to start on your phone and move to the appropriate channel depending on what your needs are. Um, when you look internationally, um, 60 to 70% of kind of primary care can be done remotely. If you think about your own experience, I don't know how often you see a doctor, but it's quite common to kind of go and see a doctor with some kind of new issue they'll kind of have a conversation with you, might do an exam, but they, they might not even need to because actually a lot of it is really medical history and whatever else. And I'm not mm. a doctor, so I'm not trying mm. to trivialise what they do. They'll refer you away for some investigation, a blood test or some other kind of test, and then they'll come back and they'll go, okay, we've got kind of a diagnosis, here's a treatment plan for this, I'm going to prescribe you some medication or refer you to a, another service or a specialist or whatever. Yeah. Um, quite a few of those um, things can be short-circuited. Well, they don't require you to be there in person. You know, there's stuff yeah. that absolutely yeah. requires you to be there in person. You know, you can't book a tetanus shot online. Yeah, and look, there's there's something to be said for face to face to face, right? And, yep, yep. and we shouldn't, um, you know, dev- devalue that nope. and say that it shouldn't happen at all. No, 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 but, absolutely not. You know, when I, I certainly think of my sort of experiences with with GPs and so on, there's an incredible inefficiency. You know, um, you know, some GPs will be like, "Oh, yeah, we can get your appointment in three days' time." Well, that's not very satisfying. Um, other ones are like, "Oh, yeah, we do walk-in appointments. You just turn up and." And then, you, you know, you you jump in the queue and then, you know, you might have to sit around for, you know, 90 minutes or something before you can actually see, uh, you know, see a doctor or nurse, yep. whatever is, is needed. Um, it, it, you know, a lot of that just doesn't make sense. And, you know, as you say, there's quite often things that are, that shouldn't need an appointment and they, um, or a, a face-to-face at least, and then there are variances around things like, oh, I just need another prescription, right? Yeah. And then so what is what is that interaction looks like? Well, okay, so it's a fifteen minute drive in the air, and then it's wait for an hour, and then 
you know, like just, How do just we these things some of the just stuff? Seem, yeah. seem really, really nuts. And so, you know, really, really ripe. So it seems and like you've got, you got lots there to work with. There's, I mean, there's lots of opportunities. And I think like a lot of um, the – there's a lot of really good people in primary care working really hard, including technology vendors building, you know, really complex systems that have to do really important things that require really high reliability, right? It's really important that your blood tests are tagged to you and not some other person, you know that they've got the right information and then that they're connected to all the right systems. You know, there's some hard stuff, but they're not really focused on really building out that customer experience. And I think what's happened over the last sort of 10 or 12 years with the introduction of smartphones is that consumers' expectations have moved massively in terms of what their expectations for customer service look like. Um, there was a really good study that Wonderman, the advertising agency, did a few years ago called Wantedness, which was talking about the fact that brands need to demonstrate they want people as customers and that c- consumers only really compare their experiences to kind of five key brands. This is in America and Europe, but mm. all, all consumers are effectively, according to Wonderman's study, comparing their kind of customer experience to Apple, Amazon, um, Netflix, you know, these kind of caliber of experiences yeah, in terms yeah. of signing up, you know, making a payment, provisioning a service, whatever it is, it's, the, the bar is very, very high. And when you're dealing with healthcare, a lot of uh, the, the core services are great. You know, most doctors, most nurses, you know, are working really, really hard, doing great work for their patients. It's not the service delivery that's the problem. It's all of the supporting experience around that. It's coming in and getting given a clipboard with, you know, 50 questions on it to fill in that you already filled in, you know, <laughs> six months ago somewhere yeah. else. Like, how do I bring my information with me? It's like, how do I know the status of my prescription request? You know, why do I have to call a medical centre and find out what's happened to it? Can I just see what's happening somewhere? And so it's just kind of bringing a whole bunch of those kind of consumer design um, uh, ideas to primary care in a way that is that works. And I think that's been one of the hardest things for us to work through is we have quite a clear idea of what we want things to do the question is how do we make it happen yeah and and what what it led us to quite quickly is we were like okay we can't be an online only service because that means there's an entire category of things we can't do yeah um and it's not safe actually and in new zealand it's also not funded so you'd have to it'd have to be private payer kind of thing and there are some services in new zealand now that do online only um and that's great but but it's i think it's very hard to kind of cohesively solve someone's healthcare needs if you can't actually poke and prod them and jab them and do the other things that you might need to do. I'm not a doctor, so I don't even know what's involved there. But but how do we kind of wrap much, much better customer service and much, much better customer communication around that? Because I think there's a lot of work that happens in health that's hidden from you as a patient or a consumer that it's happening, but you don't know that it's happening. Like, where is my prescription repeat? So last week, for example, we launched a major, major feature around prescription repeats just because you raised it. Yeah. I'll brag about it. But what we did is we just kind of started at this problem from a first principles perspective. So there are some patient portals in the country you can log into a web page and ask for more medication. Um, And as far as I know, I haven't looked at every single one, but I've looked at a lot of them. Um, You make that request and then it disappears into a black hole. And then eventually you get a text or a phone call or something from someone telling you what happened to it, or you can go and pick it up from the pharmacy. Um, so we were like, well, actually, ordering medication is just like ordering something off Amazon. Like, it should be in order, and I should be able to see the status of it, and I should know what's happening and what needs to happen next. So in the Tend app now, when you request medication, um, we give you the same kind of order tracker, like timeline thing you get with Amazon. So it's like, okay, you've submitted your request. It's sitting there waiting for a review by a clinician. Okay, the clinician's reviewed it, and actually they've sent it to the pharmacy. You can go pick it up, and we've got a nice little thing. You can say, okay, I've collected it. That's good. Or the, the clinicians looked and said, actually, you know what? We really need to see Josh again before we repeat this medication. We're concerned about other drug interactions or something else that's going on, or we need to just test, take some observations, make sure his blood pressure is okay. Mm. Um, we need you to make an appointment. So they've got the ability on our side yep. to say, yep, no, Josh needs an appointment before we can repeat this. 
and the app will tell you that because you're a nice push notification. You can go and book an appointment. And soon, we can't quite do this yet, but in the very near future, we'll be able to say, actually, is that an online appointment or an in-person appointment? Yeah. Or is that a lab test or something else you need to go and do before we just repeat this medication for you? So just really trying to streamline the kind of customer interactions and give you as a consumer more information about what's happening with things that you need out of your healthcare service, which doesn't sound that radical. It turns out to be devilishly hard to do. And I think one of the things that's been really interesting for us is going, oh, actually, we need to invent a whole new kind of operating model for this because the current model doesn't really support that kind of communication. It's too small scale, so we've had to start building out some centralised teams and things to kind of help make these things work really well. But it's been a really interesting kind of learning experience to go, okay, like what are the operational processes we need? What are the technical yep. technology solutions we need? What does the customer experience we want to build look like? And how do we mm. integrate all that together so that mm. it kind of turns into a a really integrated, seamless experience for you as a consumer. And also, the other side of this tension is how do we also take workload off frontline GPs and nurses so they can focus on the people that are in front of them, not having to deal with this backlog of administrative work that they all have to deal with every day, and by moving that into a team that can kind of process that more efficiently. There's a there's a lot going on there. There um, is a lot going on there. Yeah, I'd love to delve in a bit more, but we're running out of time. Uh, I you know, I think folks will be very interested to have a look at the app and and so on. Your coverage at the moment in terms of physical presence? Yeah, yeah so we have two 10 branded medical centres in central Auckland, so one on Simon Street and then one in Kingsland. We've got another medical centre that we own in Pakaranga that will be rebranding as a 10 medical centre next year. And then we've just announced this partnership with Better Health in the South Island, so that's still very nascent, but um, we'll be planning to expand services nationwide. But obviously the physical infrastructure needs to come, like it's be very easy for us to launch the app nationwide right now, but we don't think that's the right thing to do. Um, for patients, we don't think it's the right thing to do for the system. It needs to be supported by local providers that are integrated into that whole kind of service model. Um, and there are other companies in the market that make apps that you can use for your own practice if you have one. But we have the kind of vertically integrated approach where we have centralised operations for a whole bunch of stuff that mean that we can kind of deliver these services in a way that's predictable. I think, you know, there's a long history in this country of trying to launch apps without kind of really having the supporting operational infrastructure and the customer experience and stuff around that to make that all work. And it's led to a little bit of almost PTSD from the health sector, to be honest, of going, oh, apps don't work, um, which is something I hear quite a lot. We launched Simon Street, or relaunched Simon Street at the end of last year. So prior to that, they had no app. It was just a normal medical centre with a phone and a fax. And they don't have a fax anymore, which is, a, I consider, a win. And all the phones are centrally managed at 10, so the phones don't actually ring in the medical centres anymore. They ring into a central customer service team that can then deal with you, which is great. Mm. But we launched our app there in December, so no users of the app. And by kind of March or April, we had more than 90% of patient interactions in a month happening on the app because wow. we've just put a lot of effort into designing a really streamlined customer experience, which is exactly the same as what you see signing up for Instagram. Mm. Um, but it's not something I don't think that health has necessarily appreciated the kind of product design ethos that is kind of quite prevalent across the tech ecosystem and so it's kind of really putting the effort into like how do we really streamline this stuff so I think on average it's taking around two and a half minutes for a user to sign up to tend which is you know pretty good about 80% of people that start finish that process which is an amazing yep. conversion rate yep. Yep. Um, in almost any kind of environment I've ever worked in it's unheard of um, so just really kind of polishing and polishing and polishing and polishing how do we get the right information from people as progressively as possible as simply as possible to kind of make things happen yeah. So yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, we'll definitely have to get you back for uh, you know for an update al al along the way. Um, but yeah, really interesting to uh, to get some insights and uh, uh, hear a bit about your journey, Josh. Um, so yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing all your 
uh, or some of your expertise and experiences with us. Really appreciate that. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. Also, a huge thank you to our show partners, uh, Vodafone, Spark, uh, Two Degrees, HP, Gorilla Technology, and Deal. Uh, we really appreciate their support for uh, for keeping us uh, on the air. And uh, yeah, thanks everyone. We'll uh, we'll be back again uh, next week with uh, with another episode. Uh, there's a fair bit more content sort of coming coming through between now and Christmas, and uh, we'll probably also have some some things to listen into during the break as well if you're if you're so inclined. Awesome. All right. Thanks again, Josh. Thank you. Cheers. The New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.